0: Kaya, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not like be your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. On the twenty-fourth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edith, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy in Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious, comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen and I said What are these doing what, what are these coming to do he said These are the horns that scatter Judah so that no one raises his head and these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nation who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter
1: Would you pray with me? God, as we enter into this new series, we ask for your help to understand this ancient book and how it connects to our lives uh, today. Uh, We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your great patience with us, your mercy extended towards us, your forgiveness given to us through your Son, because often we we get off track, we get off into our own ways and our own self-interested uh, lives and self-obsessed lives very often and we forget about you, we don't pay attention to you, we don't worship you with our lives and we fail and we, we need your, your daily grace to, to save us from ourselves and to get us back on track, get us paying attention to you again because you're the best thing Uh, for us. uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach and instruct us, open our hearts to hear your voice speaking to us through Zechariah, through scripture today, that we would be changed uh, on the spot as we look at our own lives, look at our own church family as well. And we want to rightly get centered back on you, God. We ask that you would be worshiped during this time of this message that our hearts would be aligned towards you, that our eyes would get back to focusing on you, knowing that you are the best thing for us and the most beautiful person in the universe that deserves our allegiance and loyalty. Help us in this moment, Holy Spirit, through Christ we pray. Amen. Before I forget, can we take a minute to pass around our trusty clipboards? If you can assist these clipboards, one of them is a community group clipboard. You can sign up for a group on the clipboard, or you can sign up using this insert, drop this in the offering baskets later. And so five different options there for you. want to encourage you to get into a group for your own spiritual health this week fall. As you probably know, we're starting a new sermon series. We are going through uh, the book of Zechariah verse by verse this fall. The theme of this book is, it gets better. You might think we're absolutely crazy and nuts to tackle uh, an Old Testament book of the Bible, especially one that is part of the, the category of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. You might assume that this book of the bible is so negative it's full of judgment full of nothing but pain and misery and, and not helpful but you would be wrong yes there are some of those elements but you know this last summer I, I worked my way through my personal reading of scripture through the minor prophets and i was just particularly fascinated and filled with joy as i was reading the book of zechariah why is that Well, it's because, yes, the Lord, it's clear, He desires to, if necessary, discipline His people, bring them back to Himself and help them to see that they need Him. But the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God is all over this book of Zechariah. God's promises and God's hope that He gives us in Christ. Very often the book looks forward to Jesus. It's very clear and very specific. And so Jesus, as it turns out, is all over this book as well. And so it's just an amazingly helpful and powerful and poetic book of the Bible. So I'm looking forward to it uh, as we go through this book this fall. Let me explain why I believe the theme of this book is the phrase, it gets better. It gets better. I don't know if you've ever been deep down in a ditch. You've been stuck in life, like life, a moment in your life where you're asking yourself, can it get any worse than it is right now? It feels about as bad as it can possibly get. Nothing is working. Problem after problem after problem, hard circumstance after hard circumstance, and you're just stuck in the mud and you like and you're saying, "I can it get any worse than this?" And then you decide to have a conversation. Perhaps a friend reaches out to you. They see how bad your life is or how bad you are doing and they decide to sit down, have, have a coffee or a meal together with you. And in that conversation, you're just pouring out your heart to them, and you're describing in detail all of the problems in your life. And your, your friend is listening intently, and then they're trying to understand, and they're affirming what you're going through. And then your friend at the end says, I'm so sorry all of that is happening, but you know what? It gets better. Don't give up. It gets better. And when you hear those words from your friend who trusts you and who has listened to you, it kind of puts some steel in your spine again. And it helps you keep on going and not to give up. That's You see, that's the power of hope. Hope is a very powerful thing, okay? And this thing called hope is all over this book of the Bible called Zechariah. You know, right now, I believe our church family... Has been in a place where we have been dogged by discouragement uh, for a while now. Different circumstances, different uh, cancer situations with my own family and other families going on, and we've lost we've lost people in the church to cancer and this and transitions and and hard times, tough circumstances. And, and so I believe this book of the Bible will help us put the past behind us. You know, not get mired into hard circumstances and, and getting into a place of, oh, woe is me and self-pity. No, we've got to put that behind us and move on and realize it gets better. It gets better with God. It gets better with Christ. And this is very encouraging. All right. To help us better understand where we're going in this series uh, at large, I want to give you some quick background to this book of Zechariah. Interestingly, the book itself is all about the kingdom of God. In fact, you can view the book of Zechariah as sort of like the Old Testament's book of Revelation. There is all kinds of overlap between these two books. And by the way, they are written about five to 600 years apart. Zechariah was first before the book of Revelation. And I think there's all kinds of quotes. In fact, the book of the New Testament that quotes Zechariah the most is the book of Revelation. And so you'll see some overlap there between these visions like in our passage today who is this guy named Zechariah who wrote down these messages from God well Zechariah himself was not only a prophet of God he was also a priest of God born into a priestly line okay so he had sort of a twofold role and career if you will and as a prophet of God his job was to foretell and speak God's words to God's people and that was his job. Imagine having a job like that. It's kind of what a, like a pastor job. You know, you're, you're bringing God's word to God's people, and they don't always like it, okay? They don't like what God's saying or what you're saying, and they shoot the messenger. It's like, wait, no, that was God's idea, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. But this guy often felt like he was being shot at, I'm sure. And as it turns out, Zechariah himself lived in and around uh, five, the mid-500s BC, and he returned back to uh, Judea and the nation of Israel where God's people were in and around 538 BC. And the backstory to that, why were they outside of their own nation? Well, you got to understand God's people Israel spent 70 years in a foreign nation called Babylon. It was the superpower at the time. And then once Babylon was defeated by another superpower called the the, the Persian empire, uh, well, as it turns out, the king Darius, sorry, King Cyprus, who is the, the king of Persia, was much more open to Israel and much more uh, sympathetic and so he allowed God's people to leave Babylon, leave Persia, and go back to their homeland, go back and build the temple of God, go back and rebuild the great and ancient city of Jerusalem, which is what many of them did. The problem is though, after that initial enthusiasm of we get to go back to our roots, we get to go back to our homeland. Well, that initial enthusiasm turned into discouragement. That initial enthusiasm, we get to rebuild God's temple, we get to rebuild our ancient city of Jerusalem and build the walls again. Discouragement set in shortly thereafter. Why is that? Well, they basically spent in and around 20 years trying to build the temple build the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild their lives, okay, and in so doing, they ran into all kinds of problems, you know, trying to rebuild their nation from scratch, which was in ruins, that's hard in and of itself, all right, taxes were very high from the Persians, so they still had to pay taxes to this nation, then they had the Egyptians kind of nipping on their heels uh, from the south, so basically, life was far harder for them in this rebuild mode than it was as captives in babylon and so like a disease discouragement set in god's people were not doing anything at all no rebuilding going on it just kind of fell by the wayside they were kind of tuning out god didn't want to hear about god anymore doing their own thing swimming in this sea of of self-pity and feeling sorry for themselves not being faithful to the god who rescued them it's like well he just rescued us well we don't need him anymore So what does God do in response? He inspires Zechariah. He fills him with his spirit, and he gives messages that Zechariah is to convey to God's people. He gives them visions, and he gives them words to wake up Israel. Wake up, wake up, wake up is really his job. Wake up spiritually. Get back to God again. Get back on track. There's hope for the future Don't give up. It gets better. It gets better. It gets better was his primary message. Maybe, I don't know where you're at today. I can assume that many of you are going through some very difficult circumstances and times. I can assume that probably several people in this room are extremely discouraged. And you need to hear that, that it gets better. Don't stay in that place of discouragement. It gets better with God. It gets better with Jesus. Now, Edgar... Bravely read that long passage of scripture and did a very nice job of saying all those biblical names there that you may have noticed and in this passage uh, we're not dealing with every single verse or idea uh, but we are dealing with three things and in connection with that passage of chapter one of Zechariah the sermon title is simply return to me and I'll return to you sort of God speaking to us as well return to me and I'll return to you And to set this up, this idea of returning to me and I'll return to you, I want to give you a visual. And I want you to imagine somebody trying to give you a high five. And so they're excited to see you. Maybe something good has happened, sports, whatever. And they're trying to give you a high five. And they go like this. And there's a smile on their face. And they're they're basically saying, hey, high five, high five. The problem is, do you give them a high five? You do not. You leave them hanging. Nothing worse than being left hanging, okay? And even worse than you not meeting your hand with theirs, you choose to ignore them. You're trying to avoid them. You're embarrassed by them, perhaps, and you leave them hanging. Or imagine this other situation. Imagine someone is right in front of you like me before you. And imagine somebody who is much warmer and relational and emotional than I am. I struggle in this area. I'm not a hugger. But imagine I am for a second. And imagine this person in front of you is smiling and filled with warmth. And there's a big smile on their face like this guy on the screen as well. And we are here to give you a hug. Bring it in. Bring it in. So we can embrace. Give me a hug. But do you bring it in? No, no, no. You ignore the hug. Worse, you ignore the hugger. You're trying to pretend the hugger is not in front of me. I don't want anything to do with this hugger. And my question is, how does this make the high-fiver or the hugger person feel in that moment? How They're left hanging. How do they feel? Well, they feel like they're, they're hanging out to dry. They're, they're feeling like they put themselves out there, but you're not meeting the love. They're feeling horrible. They're feeling ignored, like, I'm putting myself out there. Come on. I'm trying to show you the love. But they're not feeling the love from you. It's a horrible feeling. Nothing worse than being rejected. Am I right? Nothing worse than being rejected. But you see, God's people in the time and age of Zechariah and even God's people today, individual Christians, even people who are not Christians, time and again, this is how God feels. And God is... is is there standing, pay attention to me with open arms, saying to us, to you individually, saying even to not yet Christians, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I love you like no other. Look at all I've done for you. I've sent my own son to save you. He was on a rescue mission to, to save you from yourself, save you from your sins, to give you a way of being, getting into my family as my adopted child. I'm here! But no. Sometimes, even as Christians, we we get distracted. And we don't see the open embrace in front of us. And what distracts us is our suffering, our own hard and difficult lives over here, hard, difficult circumstances over here, maybe our own dreams, our own plans, our own personal mission that has a very self-interested sort of end. Very often, our own selves get in the way of us embracing God And we miss the God who is for us like no no one else is for us. We miss the God who loves us like no other. But imagine, is God still merciful despite how we left him hanging like that? Is he still merciful to us when we leave him hanging like that? Is he still willing to work with us? Is he still open to us despite our constant leaving him hanging like that? Yes, he is. Thanks be to God. This is what gives me hope. Because I'm a piece of work, let me tell you. And it gives me hope that this is our God who is so merciful to us and he's still waiting for us. Yes, we need to take responsibility for our sins even as Christians, but he is still for us no matter what. And this is what we see in this chapter. This, time, this idea of God waiting, waiting. Return to me and I'll return to you. And we'll see this. All right, now there's three basic ideas, points that I want to share with you today that we see in this chapter one. And the first key idea, key point in your notes, there is a sermon outline in your bulletin if you do want to follow or fill in those blanks there. Number one is simply repent, return, and pay attention to God. Repent, return, and pay attention to God. Here's what you need to know about God. He is so mighty, so powerful, so capable that he can direct human history to fit his purposes and his overarching master plan perfectly. It's amazing. Who else can orchestrate human history over a period of multiple thousands of years to fulfill his own purposes? Only God can do this. This is the God of the Bible. And let me explain. If you read the Old Testament of the Bible, you will notice that there's a people that he has chosen for himself, and that people is the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And he chooses the nation of Israel for a reason. Why is that? He chooses Israel to show off himself to the world through them. He shows off his own character, his own greatness, his own goodness, and his own holiness to the world through these people of Israel. And they were very imperfect, very messed up. That's, that's sort of the irony and the humor of, the, of it all. And Not unlike us today. They were so screwed up, and yet God chose them. To showcase himself to the world. And so by design, if you look at the Old Testament of the Bible, this nation of Israel was to be a shining light to the nations to showcase the light of God and the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the holiness of God to the world as well as to sort of set the stage for the coming of who? The coming of Jesus, who was Jewish, you see and he is a, the future savior of the world. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, including the book of Zechariah. Now, how well did Israel showcase God in this way and bring light to the nations? Not that well, actually. They had some good moments, some good times, but not many. They were screw-ups. Israel became experts in how to disobey God well, how to worship other gods, how to place their hopes and dreams and, and pay attention to meager uh, God replacements that would not give them what they really needed, and not unlike us today, we are very often experts in worshiping anything and other than God. so what did God do with this disobedient nation of Israel? He disciplined them, he allowed them to be overtaken by neighboring nations, for example, uh, one of the most horrific uh, nations, and they were they were kind of like the the Oh, what's the word from Star Trek? The Klingons from Star Trek? They're kind of nasty. If, you're, if any Trekkies in the audience today, the Klingons were nasty in, in the movies and the films and the TV series. Well, the Assyrians were a lot like these Klingons, okay? They were nasty and, and very violent, and they um, they pretty much took over and destroyed the northern tribes of Israel. And essentially, they caused much of the nation of Israel to sort of disappear through not only death and that sort of thing and violence, but also cultural appropriation and cultural assimilation. So they're essentially gone. Then later, the remaining tribe of Judah in the south and the city of Jerusalem, God's people remain there. But a couple hundred years later, God allows the the Babylonian superpower to come and defeat them. and, And Nebuchadnezzar and his 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 armies cart off something like 20,000 men, women, and children 2,700 kilometers east to the city of Babylon. Now, before you think everything was horrible for Israel, forced from their home, being subjugated to this superpower called Babylon, you would be wrong. God's people thrived in Babylon. They did very well. God was very patient with his people and by his own sovereign plan, He ensured that his people were protected in Babylon, that they thrived there in this foreign nation. What happens next in the story? And this is all true. What happened next? Well, Persia comes along. They're bigger and more powerful than Babylon. They defeat Babylon. King Cyrus, as I mentioned earlier, he allows Israel, you can go back to your homeland, rebuild the temple of God, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild your nation. And so after 70 years of captivity, they go back. And about 50,000 now, probably started out at around 20,000, so you can see how they're thriving as God's people. 50,000 of them go back to Israel and to Judah and Judea. And they excitedly get right to work. We want to rebuild this temple. We want to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. Everything is, ex- is exciting and, and, and amazing. And they can't wait to get to work, which they do. But wait a minute. What happens shortly after that initial burst of enthusiasm? Again, they discover this is harder than we thought. This is brutally hard to rebuild a devastated temple, a devastated city. Plus, they got these big taxes to pay to Persia. Building supplies are hard to come by. Egypt is nipping at their heels. As a result, this initial enthusiasm, it basically just implodes into discouragement, hopelessness. Why go on? The rebuild essentially stops, goes nowhere. They have become experts in self-pity. Worst of all, they forget about who? Who do they forget about? They forget about God, the one who saved them, the one who restored their fortunes, restored them to their land. They forget about God. That's that's the danger of discouragement, and it's a real thing. Let's now look at verses 2 to 4. What does God say? Is he okay with their their discouragement is he okay with their self-pity look at verses two to two to four and then verse six and, and this is really powerful stuff the lord was very angry with your fathers therefore say to them thus declares the lord of hosts return to me says the lord of hosts and i will return to you says the lord of hosts do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out thus says the lord of hosts return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds but they did not hear or pay attention to me declares the lord Verse 6, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Let me try to paraphrase that, okay? It's like God is saying, Look, your predecessors, your fathers, they forgot about me. Now you also are doing the same. You've also forgot about me. So repent, repent, change direction from being a self interested person and nation to now being a God interested person and nation. Come back to me. Return to me, and I'll return to you. How do you think Israel responds to this? They say, Yeah, we're gonna repent. We're gonna repent. We, got, we have to, we have to change. We have to come back to you, our one and only God. Perfect. Perfect way to respond to God when He calls you to repent. You know, this reminds me of being a parent in some way. There's a few of you that are parents uh, in the room. You know, being a parent, it's my theory that being a parent is one of the best ways to understand what God has to go through every minute of every day of every year. Okay, He's our Heavenly Father, and there's a reason that He's called our Heavenly Father, it's because the, He's the ultimate parent. And we're all his kids, whether we trust him or follow him or not. Um, and, and the pattern that I've noticed in, in myself and in our own family and, and also uh, parents of older children, so the kids, you raise your kids in a certain way to do life in a certain way, try to train them the ways of life and the skills of life according to the Bible. If you're a Christian and you train them the, in, in the ways of the Lord, they get older, they become teens, they become young adults, and they become more independent and sometimes they go in a direction with their life that is totally opposite from the way that you train them in. And they are going now in a direction that is not right, but it's also not helpful or healthy for their long-term future. You see, So here you are as a parent. You've got these adult kids over here, in your view, blowing up their lives. What's your response now? How do you handle that? Can you, can you force them to... To go your way? Can you do that? No. I mean, you could illegally, but please don't. Please don't. Can you force them to make the right choices and the healthy choices? No. All you can do is say, I'm here. My arms are open to you. And when you're ready, I'm ready. I'm, ready to hel- I'm here to help you turn your life around. And until you're ready, I'll be waiting. And I will be here and I will help you. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Maybe this happened to you, by the way, with your own parents. I think it did for some of you. That's powerful. But this is what God goes through. But maybe you came here today. Again, I don't know where you are at in life, but maybe you needed to hear this message from God. This is for you. Like the good dad in the story, the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. This prodigal son, he wanted selfishly his inheritance from, from his father early. He goes off, he parties hard, blows the inheritance, realizes, what have I done? I got nothing now. Wants to go back to his father. He, he says, it's better for me to just you know, feed the pigs or do something for my dad as an employee or as a slave than it is for me to have nothing over here. So he goes back to his dad. How does, how do his, how does his dad respond to him? after he's blown a third of the father's wealth. The father runs toward his own son when he sees him. It's not so much the son running towards the father. It's more the father running towards the son. Why? Because he loves his son. And he's been waiting that whole time for his son to come home. This is God to us today. And I don't know where you're at. You might be a Christian who has lost your way. You might be a not yet Christian who has never found your way yet. you got to know and you got to believe that God is for you. He is not against you. He is waiting with open arms for you to to come to Him. And once He sees you going His direction, returning to Him, He's going to run to you. Beeline. Fast. That's the kind of God we have. He is our Heavenly Father. There is no better parent in the universe than Him. You need Him. We all need Him. I need Him. And so... If you're new to this Christianity thing, what you've got to come to God with is repentance, turning away from your own sinful life, turning to Christ. He sent his son to earth to save and rescue you. Jesus lived your perfect life for you in your place. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. In your place was the perfect sacrifice, the only one who could pay for your sins in full, which he did. And then he rose again three days later to defeat Satan's sin and death for you forevermore. So repent of your sins. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. And if you need to be baptized, why put off the baptism? You know, that happens sometimes. We would be thrilled to host your baptism for you. That's the next step that Jesus commands his followers to take, where you're saying, I'm now about Jesus following him versus myself. That's what baptism preaches and communicates. I'm off track. I have no idea where I'm. I in my notes, so let's just move to number two in our notes as we try to move on here. Number two is simply trust in the Lord's promise of watch, care, mercy, and hope. This is the second idea. Trust in the Lord's promise of watch, care, mercy, and hope. And let me uh, try to define this uh, phrase, watch, care. It's actually not in the text per se, but what is watch, care? It's a bit of a traditional word. Watch, care is a supervisory role that provides protective care. It's what parents do for your kids, It's all about watch care, making sure our kids are safe, provided for, all the rest. And this point is all about how how good God is to us. He watches over us. He gives us daily grace and mercy. He gives us hope for the future. And we see this in this next section of our chapter, uh, verses 7 to 17. What happens in this next section? God gives Zechariah this what is called a night vision. It might be a vision from God in in the, in, while he's sleeping, or he may have woken up at night, we don't know, but this is a vision of the four horsemen. Have you heard of the four horsemen before? The four horsemen. And you'll read about the four horsemen also in the book of Revelation. And the four horsemen uh, were seen first seen in this passage, again, hundreds of years before John wrote uh, and had the vision of Revelation. Zechariah asks in this night vision uh, to the angel, what in the world are these four horsemen? What do they represent? What are they all about? Well, let's take a look at verses 9 and 10. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And so the four horsemen and their job is to patrol the earth as the Lord sent them to do. It's basically God's ultimate surveillance system. Sending them out to scout out what's going on how the nations are doing how the how people are doing what is going on in the world and then report back to god uh, what is going on and what they saw and they sort of symbolize uh, the fact that god is all-knowing so nothing is beyond the knowledge of god he knows everything he knows your thoughts in this very moment maybe you're thinking i wish this pastor would stop speaking for so long he knows that okay That's how knowledgeable God is. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And so what what do these four horsemen notice about the world as they're gallivanting around the, the planet, if you will? Well, they notice that the nations in and around Judea, they're at rest. They're taking it easy, doing just fine. They're doing fantastic, actually. They're living great lives. They're very prosperous, unlike Israel, is Israel at rest at this moment in time? They are not at rest, but everyone else is in their hammock, but not Israel, okay? Israel has just undergone 70 years of, of uh, captivity. Uh, they, they're trying to scratch out this massive rebuild effort for their entire nation. So God's people are not at rest, unlike all the nations in and around them that are doing super well and taking it easy. So how does God's uh, view and respond Uh, to this discrepancy he says and I paraphrase I am jealous for you Israel you are my people yes I was angry with you formerly but now I'm ready I want to show you mercy I want to show you my grace I will help you again restore Jerusalem bring it out of the ashes bring prosperity to you and your people again because You're mine. I love you. I love you. So here's what this means for us today. I believe that God's supernatural surveillance system is still in operation. God is still all-knowing. He sees all. He knows all. He sees your suffering. He sees your pain. He sees our troubles. Yes, God will use our pain and suffering uh, and troubles at times to, or very often, to discipline us, to wake us up, all right? You know, God's Heavenly Father. Like good parents, sometimes you have to discipline your kids. Why? Because you love them. If you didn't love your kids, you would not discipline your kids. But because He loves us, He disciplines us. And He doesn't leave us in this perpetual state of discipline. That's the good news. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace through Christ. He gives us hope, a living hope. So in this very moment, Scripture teaches Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven. As we, he, right now, He's working on this new place for us in heaven. It gets better. It gets better. And so I'm just pleading with you, trust in Him. He knows everything about your life, every detail. He knows everything about our church life, what we're going through, the pain we've seen. He knows all. And whether God brings better times for you in this life, or maybe it's the better times for you are just going to be in heaven. You know, that's what my mom had to face. You know, she passed away of cancer a couple years ago, uh, two and a half years ago. And it was the realization in her mind that, you know, the healing's coming, but for reasons only God knows, the healing is not happening before heaven. The healing is later. But in either case, she had to come to terms with the healing's coming. It just may not happen before He takes me home. And that's what happened. And so that's, but that's still hope. That is enormously hopeful, and we have to keep on trusting no matter what we're going through. He is jealous for your attention. Never stop trusting Him. There's no upside to, stop, to stopping trusting in God. There's no upside to it. Trust in Him. You matter so much to Him. Let us move on to point number three. The final thing in your notes as I try to end this message. Uh, number three, the third thing we see is to resist the enemy's tactics, partner with Jesus to build His church. To resist the enemy's tactics, partner with Jesus to build his church. We get this uh, from the last section of our chapter, verses 18 to 21. This is yet another puzzling vision that God gives Zechariah to share with God's people and with us today. And Zechariah sees uh, four horns. You know what these horns are? They are bugles constructed out of animal antlers. And sort of the idea, you would often use these in battle. Very often the general would probably have them, or at least have an underling, uh, blowing this bugle horn to sort of signify we're going to get you guys we're going to take you down we're going to do you damage okay so these would be horns and so these bugle horns that Zechariah sees in this vision are representing are representing probably four great nations at the time the Assyrians the Babylonians the Persians and Greece which They have not yet come on the scene as a world power, but soon will in a couple hundred years. Okay? So that's probably what they represent. So these four horns represent these four superpowers that destroyed or will destroy or help to scatter or give Israel a hard time. Then, so we got these four horns. Okay, that's puzzling. Okay, that's probably what these represent. Then what next does Zechariah see in this vision? Well, then the Lord shows him four craftsmen. Okay, bear with me. Four craftsmen; these are likely represent uh, 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 Israel, who will help cast down and put an end to the horns. Okay, so these are guys uh, who will resist these other nations and bring about sort of uh, a renaissance of the nation of Israel. These are probably these four craftsmen probably represent the guys who would help craft and build the temple of the Lord, we think. Okay, So the idea is that when these craftsmen come on the scene, they're figuratively going to cut the horns and basically cause God's people to, to rebuild again and have their fortunes restored. So either way, we don't know what, whether it's they're going to battle against these guys or whether they're going to rebuild the temple. Whatever it is, God's people will partner again with God to rebuild and restore their nation. You might wonder, how in the world can we apply this to our situation today, you know, hundreds of centuries later? Here's what I believe we can learn from this. Uh, Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 2, he is the new temple. He is the one that brings God and people together in and of himself. He is the new temple. So he is the place where we come together because of his life, death, and resurrection. Further, Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 16, that it is he that will build his church Jesus ultimately will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so what this means for us is for us to resist satan he is our arch enemy he's trying to bring us down bring you down bring us all down to resist his efforts to bring us down and bring our church down we need to to become like these temple craftsmen we need to partner with Jesus, like the temple craftsmen partnered with God, we need to partner with Jesus as his craftsmen, crafts people, to walk in his power that he provides to build his, this church. How do we do that? How do we build Mercy Hill Church as his craftsmen? By praying for this church family. Praying for each other. You know, this morning, in our, we do some prayer in the corner there. We were praying for other people in the church. You know, that were people that we're connected with. We need to do that. Bring God's power to bear on the people that need his help. Further, so it's not just prayer. We need to invite others to, 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 to church. We need to share the gospel with the not-yet-Christians in our workplaces, in our, in our streets, in our own families, and extended families. We need to give generously of our finances back to the mission of Jesus via this church. We need to build this church by committing to this church, showing up as many Sundays as we can to pay attention to God, worship Him, and then pay attention to others that are here that we would encourage others as well as we love them. You know, thanks to Jesus, we have access to the strongest person in the universe. And the strongest person in the universe is God. And He promises to protect us from the most hateful person in the universe. Thanks to Jesus, we have the opportunity to to give our lives to the greatest mission in the universe. And the greatest mission in the universe is the mission of Jesus that he's given us, which is to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus for God's glory. In other words, we want to, to help as many people get in on all the good things that God has for the human race. And we don't want anyone to miss out on the love of God. We don't want anyone to miss out on the hope that he gives us through Christ. What an opportunity, what a privilege that he's given us this mission to give our lives to as a church family. So, Mercy Hill Church, let us resist the devil's tactics by faithfully partnering with Jesus to build his church. Why don't we pray together? God, at first glance, this passage is is tough to understand and tough to apply. I pray that we've that some good has resulted of us examining this. I pray that um, some encouragement has been received. Uh, Lord, I pray that we can take these things that we've learned today and and put them into action uh, as you give us the power to do so. Uh, Lord, we want to approach the the Lord's table and communion this morning by remembering we would have nothing without you, Lord Jesus. And so we are grateful uh, that we have hope in you because of your finished work on the cross. Because you lived our life for us, our perfect life for us in our place, you died our death on the cross for our sins, and you rose again. We are so grateful. We worship you for the gospel. Help us to examine ourselves in this moment of taking this memorial meal as we remember all that you've done for us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.